the Christian faith. We've been looking at the book of James, um, I believe since April 2019, and we're going through it bi-monthly. It's been a a wonderful privilege to preach God's word um, and to look at this very letter. Um, It's been such a blessing, personally, for me just to to live out my faith. It's important, isn't it? If we don't just acquire knowledge, um, but through difficulties, through challenges, through the COVID pandemic, to make sure our, our faith is rested in Christ, that we trust in Christ. And so this letter has been a constant reminder to live out our faith in perilous times, in difficult moments, to keep our faith wherever we may be. And so this epistle is one of the first letters and literature that we know to the church of God, to the early Christians. It's commonly believed, and correctly so, that James, the writer of this, of this epistle, the half-brother of Jesus himself. Um, if we know anything about James, he, like his brothers, they didn't believe in Jesus much. That, you know, when Jesus was fulfilling his ministry, they didn't believe his deity um, before his death on the cross, but later on became converted became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He went, went on to pastor the church there, uh, as we, we read in the, in, in the book of James and, and other scriptures. There are many, many references to, to Jesus' sermon on, on the mount. He, if you read the book, if you read this alongside Matthew 5, right through to 7, you will see just the parallels there how he has been so attentive to know Jesus' word, especially those sermons on the mount. And there are parallels also to the book, to the chapter in Leviticus 19. And so James is very versed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament in terms of the words of Jesus, right? And so one would assume that the half-brother of Jesus would start off by saying, James, the brother of Jesus Christ, such as James, that there is no reference to this relationship in this letter. Rather, he echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood aside, outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And that with that in mind, James constantly makes references all throughout this epistle to brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying that I'm not special because I am a brother of Jesus, but rather you and I share the common faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. If indeed we are Jesus' disciples, if indeed we follow Christ, if indeed we do his will, we are walking together hand in hand as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he addresses the epistles, addresses um, those he's writing to, these early Christians in dispersion, 
He uses the word dispora. That's where we read, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Those who have been dispersed. What has caused this dispersion? Well, we know after Stephen was stoned to death, right in front, Paul was there. Persecution mounted and caused Christians to flee and to spread across the Roman world. And we read that in Acts 8. And so when we put ourselves in these early Christian shoes, we can see that we're not too dissimilar. Why? Because we too are part of a spiritual exile. We're not of this world. We have a home, but we have been scattered across this land. And so sometimes we ask ourselves, where is the joy in coming to Christ? Why do we face certain challenges? What are the promises? Where are all the promises of this blessed and fruitful life? Did Jesus not say that the kingdom of God has come? Am I not in this kingdom? Why am I struggling like this? Why is this persecution coming? And so we ourselves James is writing to us even today in this 21st century. We have been dispersed. He writes to spiritual exiles. Christians scattered across the world. We are waiting a homecoming. We are waiting to return home. And so this dispersion, however, served a purpose. Why? to spread the gospel across the land. And that's where we have this great commission. Great commission that we know in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority has been given to me on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How else would the gospel spread unless there was persecution? And so Acts 1.8 echoes this also. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gospel needed to reach far and wide. Away just from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It was God's purposes. That's how God executes his plan. He used persecution to execute his divine plan. You may ask, why would God use persecution in such a way? Well, there are inner trials that we face that James speaks about, but also external, external opposition and oppression and pressures that come. And so in the same way, Israel in the Old Testament faced oppression, external pressures from the Assyrians and the Babylonians as we've learned in Bible studies. These early Christians also faced their own time of persecution. One, because of sin. One, because of their faith in Christ. 
And so persecution comes in many ways. Trials comes in many ways. Tests comes in many ways. But God works all things together for good. Both internal, personal sin and external persecution. God uses all to point us to our saviour, Jesus Christ. And to bring his people to his sanctuary, to his home. And so as we've been going through the epistle of James, I hope it's been clear just how practical James is. Practical faith. Indeed, others have questioned the strength of this epistle. They've called it the theology of straw. They've said it's weak in theology, that there is nothing here to build theology on. They said it's so weak, they say. But we know that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God and the woman of God may be perfect, may be complete and equipped for every good work. And there you have it. There is no value in acquiring knowledge without living out our faith. Without living out and obeying God's word. There is no value in acquiring all the doctrine in one's intellect if there is no teaching, if there is no reproof, correction, training to be in right standing, to be Christ-like and finally to produce good works. That's the point. James would have you know that yes, good works does not save a believer but only faith in Jesus does that. However, in the same breath, He would say that true faith is never without works. True faith works. And so this is this letter packs some few punches. It's 50 or so imperatives in 108 verses. And so we don't have time to go through all as we seek to give an overview this evening. But there are two instances that Jesus is explicitly named. Some people say, oh, where is is Jesus here? This is weak. That's what they said this book was. It's weak in theology. But we see right from the get-go, chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so to assume that there are only these two occasions that he mentions and talks about Jesus is hugely incorrect. See, the preacher Martin Luther believed that this epistle did not teach about Christ. It's very easy to focus on the imperatives in this letter and it's just saying, you just do, 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 do. Where is Jesus himself here? Where is the Lord of glory here? But this book constantly echoes the words of Jesus on the mount, as I said earlier. And so as you read and study through the book of James, the letter of James in your own time, have Jesus in mind. Why? Because James had Jesus in mind. See the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, laced and woven into every chapter of James. We've seen chapter 1, verse 4. Someone who is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Chapter 1, verse 9. Who is that lowly person? It's Jesus. Who is that lowly person who is now exalted? It's Jesus. In chapter 112, who remains steadfast under trial? All these things that James encourages us to do, who has fulfilled them? Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 16, the good and perfect gift from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. The best gift and the perfect gift we have received is Christ himself. And so who is the living word in chapter 1, verse 21? Jesus himself. In chapter 2, verse 12, who is the law of liberty? The one that set us free from the law that we could never fulfill, but has fulfilled the law on our behalf and given us freedom. Jesus himself. In chapter 2, verse 8, who came to fulfill all the laws? Jesus. 2.13, who is merciful? James says, mercy is without mercy for those who are merciless. But who has poured out his mercy beyond measure upon us? Jesus himself. And so when we continue, so I'll move quickly. Chapter 3, 2, the perfect man who was tested at all points and did not stumble. Jesus. Who is the wisdom from above? Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 10, the one who exalts the humble. Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 12, who is the lawgiver and the true judge? Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 4, who is the Lord of hosts, the armies of heaven, the commander of the heavenly hosts? Jesus himself. Chapter 5, 7, who is the soon and coming king, our Lord and Saviour Jesus? Chapter 5, 15, who is the healer? that raises up when we pray, who is able to heal Jesus himself. And finally, as we saw this morning, chapter 5, 19, Jesus himself is the one that rescues from spiritual death. Death, why? Because he died on the cross. He rescues sinners. And so the tapestry of the letter of James and indeed the whole scripture reveals Jesus our Lord and instructs every believer to live out our faith as you remain, you remain in spiritual exile. Don't be like the wicked in the world you live in, but be separate. Be a peculiar people, set apart. And with that said, there are two things over our king, themes, I believe James teaches us here. What is true faith? Where does that faith come from? How is our common faith proved to be true and genuine? And so we look firstly at, that, at the hallmarks of true faith. Now we're referring here to salvation faith, the faith that saves. Why is this a focus of James? Well, we need to know who has saved us. How are we saved? Why are we saved? the security of our salvation. And so there's no better verse to look at than James 1, 16 to 18. Turn with me there, there again. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for his, of his creatures. And so look, look at, again at these statements that we said, the questions we asked earlier, who, how, how, knowing who has saved us, the Father here, the Father's purposed salvation. That's what we're saying in these verses. The transcendent God himself, who is above all things, has given us his beloved, his, his beloved children, he's the most precious, the most amazing gift in Christ. And so all other gifts come from him. They originate from him to God's children. So here is God who dwells in unapproachable light, condescending to human beings in the form of human flesh, to come, to come in our flesh, to come and save sinners, to reconcile us, to take us from this dark world and translate us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. This is the immutable God. He's unchanging in his being, his substance, his character, his acts, his dwelling. And so how are we saved? Are we saved by human will? No. We're saved by the will of God. By God's will, we are regenerated. He has brought us forth by his will. And that agent is through the gospel. In time, the word of truth pierces our heart and does that work and the Holy Spirit transforms and gives us a new heart to repent and trust in him. So God willed before time to save sinners through the process of time, through the hearing of the gospel. We come to Jesus. Why are we saved? That we should be reconciled to God's family, a kind of first fruits. This is the spiritual life we were created to live, awakened spiritually from spiritual deadness, raised as a kind of first fruits after our Lord and Saviour, the true first fruit, the resurrected Saviour, the one that's resurrected from the dead, being raised with our Lord, but also our brother Jesus into a fellowship with the triune God. We are saved to live for our Saviour. We are to be like him in every way. We are to live for him. His death is our death. His life is our life. And so fruits, as fruits, resemble each other. Like when you, you can see an apple, you know what it is. And so we ourselves must resemble the first fruit we are a kind of first fruits. The true first fruit is Jesus our Lord. So we must walk in his ways. We must resemble Christ. The security of salvation. Notice God who orchestrates our salvation never changes in these verses. True faith is sustained by God because he that starts a good thing is able to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus on that day of our Lord and Saviour. And so there is no deviating from God's plan. Nothing can stop God's plan of salvation 
No darkness, no wickedness, no person can separate you from his will and his love for you. So these verses teach us the work of the Trinity. We see God the Father is the author of salvation. God the Son as a propitiation who makes us favourable to God and stands in our place as a substitute for our sins. We see the Holy Spirit as the one that regenerates hearts and brings us to new life. God the Father gives the gift of repentance and faith in Christ to believe and to trust him through the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so true faith is never hidden. When a child is born, the rightful response is to celebrate, is to rejoice. And so that's how it is when someone comes to faith, someone comes and regenerated. There is a rejoicing that goes on in our hearts. The heavens declare and they are rejoicing. The host of heaven rejoicing. Someone has received the gift of salvation. The gift of life is so precious and even more so the gift of spiritual life. True faith is revealed in a regenerated and converted Christian. But like new babies and new fruits, when they are first revealed, they're not the most clean. They need to be washed. They're not, they need to be cleansed. And so when we come to faith, there's still a work that needs to be done in us. Brothers and sisters, there are tests for spiritual, our spiritual walk with the Lord. We're not just made a Christian and that's it. There are what we call tests of our faith. And that's what James majors on. He's saying you will be prodded, you'll be squeezed, you'll be cut. You will experience hardship for your faith. If indeed it's genuine, your genuine faith must be tested. Like gold that needs to go through the fire, be purified. And so this is our second point, the tested faith. John Brooks writes, Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. How true. All the good a faithless person can do, can perform, is a stench of sin before the living God. A person that is unconverted is not able to please God. Why? Because they deny God, denying his goodness, even in their perceived goodness. They doubt who God is. So James says, they are double-minded and unstable in their ways. Chapter 1, verse 8. They live in deception, have no control over their tongue. They have elements of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They break the law of God. They are worldly, unable to resist the devil. Even believing that God is one. But just like the demons believe also that God is one. Even the demons believe and shudder. They're not humble, but great boasters. Boasters in wealth, boasters in their works, boasters in the worldly subjective truths and spiritual, demonic wisdom. There is no mercy for the merciless sinner. Life is like a mist, yet the unbeliever believes in the certainty of tomorrow without resting in eternal security found in Christ. 
There is no crown of life awaiting any unbelieving person who rejects the gift of the grace of God in Christ. As those are some of the hallmarks of the false faith James reveals. Everyone has faith in something. What you believe in will govern your life. We believe in something, but when it's tested, is that faith real? Would that faith save you? But those who are trusting in Jesus have the responsibility to live out our faith. How do we live this transformed life as Christians? James says, find your joy in the Lord. Find your joy in the tests of your faith. And so when we look at chapter 1, verse 2 again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James proceeds to reveal a multifaceted test of our faith, the kind that comes by suffering, steadfastness in suffering, wisdom that we need to seek in suffering, trusting God in and knowing that he has a purpose in that suffering. He speaks about dependency on God in supplication, in adoring God, in confessing our sins to one another, in giving thanks to God. He writes about our internal temptations as well as our external temptations that we face, internal temptations, those desires that grow and conceive and become sin. He speaks about eternal temptations, the world, the devil, enticing, creating traps for believers, drawn by their desires, wandering away as we talked about this morning. And so he asks Christians to consider some of these questions. How is your mouth and your ears bearing the fruit of righteousness? What are you listening to? What are you hearing? In how you speak about Christ when you share the gospel, in the preaching of God's word, in daily conversations with those made in the image of God, how does your life reflect the fruit of your faith, the fruit of righteousness? Are you quarrelsome? He says, why do you wage war against your fellow brother and sister in Christ with your words? In what way are you putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness? Are you submitting to God's word? Are you submitting to God? What are you doing with the word that you hear every Sunday as you read your word every day? What are you doing with that word that you read about? Are you partial in dealing with people from diverse backgrounds? Difficult and different economical statuses, different educational backgrounds. How are you relating to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you submitting to God and resisting the devil? Do you seek the wisdom from above? Or are you seeking to live by worldly standards and wisdom? 
And so James writes in chapter 2, 14 to, 14 to 18, he says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so if it's saying faith without works is dead, what are these works then? Are these things that we do in our own strength and power? No, these are the works of righteousness, the righteous work of God in and through every believer. The courage in trials, the patience in suffering, the fruit of the converted life in Christ, appreciating and growing in the love of God and loving God's people. James calls it the royal law. And so Jesus came to fulfill all the laws which we could not keep. We could never keep those laws. Hundreds of laws. But thanks be to God who by his grace and mercy freed us from being a slave to sin, from being a slave to the law, but now a servant of Jesus Christ, son who the son has set free is free indeed. First Peter 2.9 reminds us, doesn't it? that we are his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his, mar- into his marvellous light. So finally, how should we read this letter? We should be comforted by Christ revealed in this letter. He has fulfilled all things perfectly. He has fulfilled all the works we could never do perfectly. Brothers and sisters, you're striving in difficult times. When you face challenges of life, it's not in vain. When you trust and rest in Christ. Why? Because he has accomplished it all. When we don't receive healing Here on earth, we can trust that Jesus himself is our healer. He will heal every of our diseases at that day when we see him face to face. We can be comforted that it's him that's working in and through us when we submit to him. He gives us the strength, the hope, the character. He helps us to persevere even despite our weaknesses. Despite our struggles, he is the one that is near to us. He has the hosts of heavens with him. He's our our commander. We are soldiers. And so we get in line. We follow our king. We follow our, our God, our king himself. We can be comforted that Jesus will sustain our life. He can Jesus sustains our faith. He's the one that started it. He will complete it. He shall complete it on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We can rejoice in every test and trial. Why? They have a purpose. We may not see those purposes. We may not understand. But there is a promise that he has said to us, if we ask, he will give us wisdom. He will give us wisdom. Wisdom in a secret heart. A heart that's contrite. A heart that's surrendered to him. A heart that longs for Jesus. We don't look at circumstances no longer, but we look to Christ. Even though the pain is there, even though the struggle is real, but we look at our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who bled and died for us. And he has comforted us with his people. He has put us into his family, the body of Christ, so that we hold each other's hands, we hold each other accountable. So we look to each other, we pray for one another, we confess our sins to one another. Christ comforts us through his people. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus today, turn to the Saviour who has fulfilled all righteousness. Stop trying to earn salvation. Stop trying to work for your salvation. Salvation is no other except Jesus Christ. He has completed and finished it all on the cross. God only loves sinners in Christ and through Christ. There is no comfort in trial, no forgiveness of sin, nor freedom from the power of sin outside of Jesus Christ himself. Come to the Lord. There is no wisdom or works you could do that is pleasing to God outside of Jesus. There is no true fellowship with God and with his people outside of Jesus. So turn away from the comfort of the world and turn to the comfort of Jesus Christ himself. Embrace his eternal grace and his eternal love. Secondly, obey the commands given in this letter. We can't miss it. James is reminding us, be doers of God's word. Not just hearers only, but be doers. Make this word, this living word, Christ, his book, the word of God, a mirror which we look into. We see our sinfulness, but we see the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We see the grace and truth has come in Jesus Christ. We see that he has come from above to rescue us. And so we must be doers of his word, not just hearers, only deceiving ourselves. And so we know that faith apart from works is dead faith. We must be devoted and zealous for good works, eager to live for Christ. So we know to live for him is to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We must be poured out, like, like Paul says, be poured out as like a drink offering unto the Lord. Our lives must be about doing our Father's business, living for Christ. And so as we end, I love this wonderful quote by Bavink, J.H. Bavink. Scripture is quite plain that it is the church, the body of Christ, which forms the organ through which and in which the glorified Christ will reveal his great work of salvation to the world. Know this, brothers and sisters, 
that good works are for the proclaiming of the excellencies of Christ himself, for the building up of the body of Christ and to be a witness to the unsaved in the world. Amen.